All right. Well, before we get started on the technical stuff, uh, we should do a little summary from the last episode. It's been several weeks uh, since we talked. Now, now I was uh, I was just saying before we were recording, you know, I've been writing up a lot of this stuff, and I'm like uh, very unsatisfied with with where I've come with it. But I think I think I figured out this morning when uh, it's raining around here and my son is sick. So there's a combination of having to te- check the temperature of your son at 3 a.m. in the morning, and and also the dog. She she like comes and bothers you. Because presumably thunder, and she wants to go outside, but then she doesn't actually go outside. It's a very confusing situation, which is the perfect time to think about what cloud native enterprise architecture <laughs> is. But I, I was uh, I was listening to our past episode, and I think I think there's this one part, almost all the way through, where where I think I think I don't know. My current theory is you summed up really well, like what what a primary job of of uh, cloud native enterprise architecture is, and that is like. Uh, I, I, I don't know. It's sort of like moving the organization from a very like siloed out, disconnected with respect to the business approach to like the idea of, uh, I don't, you have to tell me what the rest of the world calls it nowadays, but the, the balance mm-hmm. teams or the product teams. Sure. And, and so this, this becomes the crux of the confusion that I have about cloud native architect enterprise architecture is. And, and and tell me what your perception of, of these definitions is or understanding is. So you got these these product teams. One might call them, if they were enlightened, the DevOps teams, right? So in the, the uh, what would you call it? The most artistic rendering of how software should be done today. The most optimistic, orthodox, if you will. You have these teams of, uh, in the pivotal thing, it's always an even number of person because you pair, but that's a very pivotal oriented thing. Uh, you have you have from let's say four to at most maybe sixteen people on the team, right? And and in in DevOpsy fashion, you've got developing developers and and developing skills. But you've got developers and people who are operation centric designers. You'll have a a PM which either stands for product manager or program man. Who, who knows? But they're they're sort of like the manifestation of the business's interest. If you go all the way back to XP, there's this idea that the business is sitting with you and helping uh, prioritize and understand the stories. And if you just had a business person with you who understood what was going on, it would be very efficient and you could kind of get rid of all these chains of uh, like the guy from Office Space. You know, I take the requirements from the business to the developers. Anyhow, so you have these product teams that basically know everything about what should be implemented and uh, and they're deploying on a highly automated platform so they don't have to worry about this stuff. And this is the crux of the problem is like, well, you've got all the knowledge and the skills you needed to successfully help the business do whatever they want for that one application. Um, and it's sort of like, so why do you need an enterprise architect? <laughs> and so in one view, you know, what we're talking about uh last episode it's it's sort of like the enterprise architect as change manager to like go in and help fix uh an organization that does not work in that that highly orthodox way of of operating which makes total sense right and 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 for those who uh don't uh, haven't memorized or just reviewed a transcript of our last episode like i have we kind of start off talking about how uh, i have this this uh this uh what would you call a scenario where I'm like, so Matt, you get hired to go fix an organization because they're going to, uh, they're going to do the, uh, the machine learning, Bitcoining Watson, uh, IOT initiative. That's going to save their bacon. Um, 
and they have no idea what's going on. So you're like, the first thing I'm going to go do is understand how the business functions and what they do. And then I'm going to go see what capabilities IT is doing and also how IT is organized to deliver on this idea that the best way to uh, succeed in business with software is to like rapidly iterate and and have these DevOps teams focus on uh, design, if you will. And I'm mixing together a lot of our, our words, not just you saying that. So so then, so an enterprise architect could come in, cloud native enterprise architect, and transition everyone over to that team state. And then the question becomes, so has the enterprise architect just fired themselves, <laughs> right? And um, mm-hmm. I don't know, I guess, I guess that gap between this highly idolized notion of you've got these, let's say 200 product teams, all having an embedded business person, understanding what the business needs them to do, not having to worry so much about the infrastructure underneath because they're working on a good automated cloud platform. So there's that notion. But I feel like there's probably an enterprise architect in there still, or I don't know, maybe not, maybe not. Like, and here, let me let me round myself up because this, this is just me, you know, sort of Woody Allen style unloading to my therapist who just nods, writes things down. Uh, so so I've been reading more stuff, right? And and even stuff I've written up is like centered on this, like mapping out your business. And 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 uh, there's this book, Continuous Architecture, and it ad nauseum goes over all these uh, hipstery ways of basically describing requirements and prioritizing them. And I keep thinking like, but so you can generate those, but like who uses that? Like who is this being generated for? Because again, their product teams are like, I got the business person right here. I just go ask Jerry. Uh, that's a comfortably non-gendered name. I just go ask Jerry like what what it is we should be doing this time and they tell us. So what do I need this uh, this Baroque business mapping from? And if I need a value stream map, I'll just sit down with Jerry and the team and we'll do a value stream map. So why why do I need an EA? So where's the uh, where where am I wrong with all that? Yeah, well, I mean, my my gut reaction just listening to everything you just said is that it is it was probably it, first like very... you got to get your shit together and organize your thoughts. That's probably <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. I think I think it's I think it's in one of the first words you you said, which was uh, I can't remember if it was idealistic or optimistic or mm-hmm. what the word was, but I think at the end of the day, what you're describing is some some perfectly realized ideal idealized state that most um, most companies, particularly particularly enterprises, as they're beginning this journey, they're nowhere near this end state where. They've got the fully automated, fully awesome uh, platform happening right. underneath their applications, and their applications look nothing like, um, you know, well-defined domain-specific microservices with great contracts and everything else around them to ensure that when they make a change, that they don't destroy, you know, the whole other, you know, universe or constellation of microservices around them. Yeah. yeah. Right. So I think. Um, which, which sort of which sort of feeds into the the opening theory I had is like for the foreseeable future, which is you always got to choose, in my opinion, three to five years. That's always the the, the foreseeable future. Uh, you know, in ten years, who knows what's going to happen? One year is not enough, and two years just feels like a cop out. So it's got to be three to five years. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the foreseeable future, a cloud native enterprise architect is one of the chief people who's helping transform the organization as close to this idealized state as possible. I, I would say so. I'd say it's, I mean, if you think of um, transformation, not even in like a technology specific sense, but in a more general sense, um, 
I think what you see in enterprises as they go through, you know, air quotes transformations is, is that there's always this component of organizational change management. Um, I think typically that's, you know, the, uh, the uh, arena of, you know, HR and things like that. But I think you're, you're super correct in that. I think when we're talking about these large technology changes, you need organizational change management for the technology um, and its implementation and architecture as well. And I think that's absolutely a perfect spot for enterprise architects to fit in and really continue to drive relevancy and value right. um, as organizations go through these large technical changes of which cloud native and, you know, microservices and all that. I mean, that's just the current, you know, flavor du jour, right? Like, like you said, in three to five years, it'll be something else. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be, it'll be, uh, it'll be Jeff. Jeff is a thing, right? I don't know what that's, isn't I think I've finally <laughs> tracked down what that is. And someone was saying it was, it was some, some, as, as is the style with the artists today, it was a rant about how this, this is like the, 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 the height of, of art, artistic, uh, whatever it is, cloud native, uh, commentary nowadays is, is you have to write a piece that basically argues the uh, the uh, what's it called when you have two competing things? Not a dialectic. The dichotomy of mm -hmm. serverless is bullshit, and yet serverless is brilliant. But we can't call it serverless. And I think I think that was the most recent one. Is someone who was like they were doing the uh, the, the dichotomic discussion of serverless, and they're like, we might as well call it Jeff or something like that. And then, <laughs> and then so now we're supposed to call it Jeff. Do, do I have that right, or do I need to? Do I, I haven't seen that yet, but it sounds. Like uh, maybe I got that wrong. Into. I'm gonna have to go tell my research assistant to do a better job so I can have more confidence here. Okay, so 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 that that's that's good. That's something that I think is is tangible, and it's not too much of a uh, solution looking for a problem. That being, you know, we have these enterprise architects who need to figure out something for them to do other than fire them. I don't know. There's something to work with there. I think that's good. So we were going to talk about today. So we kind of we kind of played around with the notion of you've got the northbound enterprise architect. And the, the 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 things that an enterprise architects northbound, which goes towards the business, and we talked about last time, and then you have the southbound, which is sort of like down towards IT, and therefore a highly technical thing. And I don't mm -hmm. know if if you've had a lot of time to think about how you want to approach this, so we can go back to that. But here's 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 the delving into it that I've 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 been curious about, and you sort of mentioned is like, uh, so if we have microservices, and let's just let's just. Well, I don't know. How how would you define microservices? Give us like a good pat definition uh -oh. that's functional. <laughs> oh, I'm just laughing because this is um, maybe a little easier than trying to give somebody a, a definition of DevOps. But mm. um, to me, I mean, microservices <laughs> is largely about um, – I'm trying to stay away from the word of single purpose. But tr try, trying to find um, kind of a well-defined, well-bounded – um, set of functionality that is maybe, you know, purpose specific or domain specific and trying to keep that as pure as possible so that you have better chances of reusing those individual pieces of functionality or those, those different capabilities um, to compose lots of different types of applications and services. Yeah, no, um, I, th I think I think that's good, and and I always hesitate to wade into this because I've never actually programmed or experienced doing a microservices thing. But, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean, just to to reword what you're saying, you you've got uh, you know anyone who's programmed for more than a couple of years, they understand how you want to modularize or componentize things, and it gets you the benefit of. 
Well, the first benefit gets you is that as humans, you can comprehend what it should be doing. And, you know, you can, you can, it makes an elephant smaller so you can eat it. Um, which is a weird analogy. Uh, but it breaks it down into something that is comprehensible by a person who can therefore, or a team of people who can therefore code it. And then I, th- I think, I think the, the other hope of microservices is one that they're a lot more scalable by nature of being much smaller. And, and they're also scalable in the sense of being um, easier to, let's say, innovate to be charitable. They're easier to evolve because they're smaller. This is a trick, I think, of a lot of cloud think is they talk about scalability and, um, and being able to evolve something. And the trick is, as with all good tricks in computer uh, programming, doing a lot less than you initially think you would. <laughs> so the smaller the unit of work you're doing, the better it is as far as scalability and, and uh, agility of being dialed features. But, you know, I, th- I think, I think a good, there's a good discussion of it. I mean, we won't go into it too much, but there's a good discussion I listened to this weekend in the, uh, the women in tech podcast. And I forget her name. I don't, I barely know what your name is. I, I'm not good with names, uh, but I, I, I have to, I have to go, I have to go look up how to spell your name every time. Cause I'm like, man, that is such like an easy, pretty awesome last name that surely it's not spelled how I think it is. But anyways, uh, so there's a good, a good episode there with someone from uh, Capital One. And she gives a couple of examples of good microservices and how you size them up and everything. But the idea of a microservice is basically, uh, I'm talking way too much here, but it's basically mm-hmm. like, let's, let's have a small API endpoint that backs a small amount of functionality that basically evolves on its own, and it's it's just it's just a component, a service that you'll have. But it's 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 small size is what's important. It's not like a gigantic big thing. So, anyways, right? And and I what mean, we're I think, what we're gonna do is oh, have like hundreds of these microservices, and they're gonna be mashed up together into the various applications that we have. Fair enough. Totally agree. Yeah. I was just gonna try to use a clever uh, analogy with like Unix commands and how. Mm. You know, if you go back um, and think about kind of like the spirit behind behind uh, Unix commands, it's that you know each command does one one small, very well defined thing, and it yep. does it really, really well. And if you need to do something fancier than that, well, then you start chaining them together. Yeah, I no, I, I think that's, that's incredibly that's the that's the best helpful too. analogy. I think everyone nowadays knows about Linux, basically, and even in Windows land, they have PowerShell, so they kind of understand, uh, as they used to call it, monads. Or uh, little little things in there. So, so okay. So this is my first opening thing. Since we're going to talk about technical stuff, if I can just make myself shut up here, is Let's do it. so. It seems to me if I've got these hundreds of microservices, uh, and this is very well illustrated by these these diagrams that basically look like um, you know like a flower threw up everywhere. It's all these great curves going back on each other with that little points on them, mm-hmm. and it seems like so that's a mess. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and and how do we not only how do we something else you mentioned last time is deduplicating functionality you have not so much maybe cost control is a side effect. But I, I like the way you phrased this last time is you want to deduplicate the functionality, the services you have in IT to democratize, democratize, which is to say, make easier to use and understand all these various components you have out there, right? So if you've got five different ways of giving, if you've got, you know, 10 different views of the customer, and it gives you five different ways of viewing 
um, you know, their invoices or what their loyalty program stuff is, it's confusing. And you've got this cognitive tax of like, I have to figure out which one to use and how to translate mm -hmm. and all that. So you want to dedupe to make things more efficient as far as using it. So that would be something I think would still apply to a microservices world. And then you would Absolutely. have, and then you would have all the illities, right? Like this microservice. Well, first of all, you're mandating like it should have a restful API, <laughs> right? Like, or not, right? Like, so anyways, it seems like managing the principles and practices and deduping microservices is a function that needs to happen, which I, that seems like a good way to simmer into southbound technical EA stuff. I don't know. Sure. Yeah, well, and I would say it doesn't even just apply to the microservices, right? I mean, as as you mentioned, you know, the the flower that what did you say the flower that threw up all over itself? Yeah, um, all those moving pieces have a lot of other moving pieces supporting them, right? In the form of uh, configuration management or deployment scripts or continuous delivery or monitoring or you know whatever the operations things are that are um, at least if you're going to do it well are necessary to support each of those microservices. Um, the more duplication you have going on with those pieces, I think the greater um, the greater the likelihood is is that um, the more people are doing duplicate effort, probably the more time they're spending doing duplicate effort instead of adding value and perhaps. Um, even undermining quality quite a bit because there's no, you know, strong standardization or community of practice around whatever, whatever the defined standards are. So I think whether it's the actual, you know, business logic or application logic within the microservice or the ecosystem of technology necessary to run those microservices in production, um, I think that, yeah, the, the, the spirit of deduplication and, and trying to, you know, establish best practices and standards that everybody can leverage, um, definitely should be a goal of, of that enterprise architecture function. Yeah. Well, good. That pans that out. I got that sorted. So, so what else, what, what else do you think? Like, like looking southbound, I'm, I'm trying to stop myself from, from talking about here. Like what, what else do you yeah. think the cloud native enterprise architect is doing? I, I, I guess by southbound, what we mean is like, let's just use the number a hundred. Cause that seems yep. comprehensible, but also overwhelming. <laughs> mm -hmm. You've got a hundred different product teams. Right, like mm -hmm. your big financial institution or whatever, um, sure. And the enterprise, the EA or the team of EAs is like, so I'm looking down on these teams, not judgmentally, but just sort of like metaphorically. And mm -hmm. uh, what am I doing with them? I've, I've done the microservices thing. I'm making sure that they're deduping functionality. And well, let, and maybe well, I've specified this is what I don't know, but 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 what what else? What are they doing? I mean, I would I would even back up a second from there because I think the first thing that probably they're trying to do. I mean, if we are all taking for granted that a microservices, you know, cloud native architecture is the ideal place to uh, point the ship, um, I still think there's a ton of work to do, especially within enterprises, to get um, people to wrap their heads around that and to actually embrace that idea and to support it. Um, which is then how they actually start mobilizing people and, and funding around executing towards those goals. Um, and I think, you know, probably you and me, we, we work with a lot of, you know, forward-looking, kind of forward-leaning companies and enterprises, but there are a ton. Um, for, every, for every one I have that's forward-looking, I've got between tw 10 and 20 that hmm. don't even know what I'm talking about. Right, so, right? This, so this, this, whole, this goes back to the, the, the change management thing, but it's just at a technical level instead correct. of a... Let's call it an organization and business level is more of the northbound thing. Yes. 
Yeah, so I think the idea of being customer-focused and working closely with the business and figuring out what's important to them is probably the spirit of Northbound. I think the spirit of this whole Southbound conversation is how do you actually move um, these different technical disciplines, these technical domains, as well as the applications themselves closer closer to this model. Um, and I think a lot of that is... Uh, you know, it's a lot of selling internally. It's a lot of influencing. It's a lot of politics. It's a lot of change management just to get to the point where then you can start chipping away at making the technical changes that you want to make. Yeah. What, what, what I, I mean, I, I generally label all of that hustling. <laughs> right? like, like <laughs> yes. You just, you just hustling. You, totally you, hustling. Uh, yeah. And, and so, I mean, what are some experiences you've had either in a consultative role or like by being the actual person like of encountering that, right? Like the, you know, you're saying sometimes it's easy and sometimes it's difficult, but like, what are the, yeah. give, give us, give us some little anecdotes and use casey things. Oh, um, I mean, I would say generically speaking that those conversations play a lot easier in development. Um, I'm not totally sure why that is. I, th I think because I think development is maybe the first and most obvious benefactor of making these changes mm. because suddenly they're able to, be more productive, be more efficient, be more autonomous. Um, I think these conversations tend to be a little bit harder when we start talking to groups like infrastructure operations and security. Yeah, and and why what do you think? What do you think this it is with the second group? Because because I agree, like the in general, developers are always willing to try something new. I think it's just right. the nature of. It's hard to become a developer if you don't, you're not sort of innately already interested in learning new things and trying it out. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's uh, man, I can't imagine either learning on your own or being uh, in, in, uh, in college or university. And uh, man, if, if you weren't curious in new things, your life would suck. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, right. Like you have to uh, ultimately to do to be a good programmer. I never took got a CS degree, but you have to be like internally motivated to to just right. try out new things on your own. So it's sort of like it's it's in the nature of them. But what, what what's the nature of these other functions that they're not interested in in new things? Right. Well, you know, or, I don't I mean, think of course, we're generalizing, but like that yeah. the result isn't as as luxurious with these other roles about trying out new things. Sure. Sure. And I think, I mean, I think the answer for them might be the same as the the question you posed about the enterprise architect earlier, which is if all of these teams are autonomous and self-service and doing things on their own, well then like, does that mean there's some diminished or, or even eliminated need for things like enterprise architecture and operations and, and infrastructure? Um, and I think a lot of that comes out of the fact that I think for a long time, those teams um, have been incentivized to keep things um, tightly under control, tightly stable, try to reduce change. Um, and I think getting them over the hump um, to think, you know, it actually is an incredibly complex engineering problem to offer self-service in a way that these developers can be successful with their applications without hurting themselves from a security or compliance or stability or, or those sorts of things, there's actually a really huge um, engineering challenge to be solved in doing that, right? And so this, this ties back to, uh, I think, what we were talking about earlier, which is this assumption that I've got this awesome platform that's taking care of everybody's needs in a way where they can just focus on writing code. Mm. And I guess what I've seen is 
that's almost never the case. And that more usually what you end up seeing is a bunch of you know, infrastructure teams or operations teams thrashing around, trying to figure out how to make their services attractive and invaluable to developers. Meanwhile, you've got developers who are, you know, after, you know, however many years of, of suboptimal experiences with operations, still not trusting those offerings, um, being unwilling to collaborate with those infrastructure teams to develop, you know, meaningful and um, strong offerings, and therefore continuing to do all of this duplicative, undifferentiated infrastructure operations work to support their cloud-native microservices. Yeah. So, right. what, so what, what do you think some good examples of those, those kind of services are? Oh, I mean, I think you name them, right? Like, I think whether that's, you know, one dev team writing chef cookbooks to deploy, uh, I don't know, Java applications running on Tomcat or deploying Cassandra databases or whatever have you, right? You'll have one team that's like kind of hacked it together using Chef. You've got another team that might be using Ansible. You might have another team that's using, you know, the enterprise standard, which I don't know, what would that be? Maybe VMware, like vRealize automation, um, all of the solutions are kind of hacked together. None of them is incredibly strong because there's not enough eyeballs on them from the people engineering and delivering them um, and the people actually using and consuming them to end up with something that's actually enterprise class. Mm. Right? So, so I think that that's one example. And, and, so, um, and so services there, the ones you're just going over are basically like right. your, your deployment and your operation services, right? The, the, what I would call the infrastructure uh, you know, sure. from, from the perspective of like, I don't know, the UI, <laughs> the application and the business logic in, in, a, pro, in, a, yep. in a piece of software, all, everything underneath it is, is infrastructure. And so just to summarize what you're saying, um, a, a not so good habit is everyone is doing, most everyone's doing something different as far as how they both define and then um, operate and then also how, how they define their infrastructure how they operate their infrastructure and how they set every, configure everything so their their software can run on the infrastructure. Correct. Right. And and then are there sort of more like business logic-y services that you would put under that purview like like user authorization or I don't know what address canonicalization? I, yeah, I mean any place that you've got some sort of uh air quotes canonical data store. I think the more that access is restricted to that, and this is kind of the point of our last conversation, the the the, the less standardized and the less open those services are, the more the more you're going to see the um, the uh, tendency to either you know couple to that data source in a way that's not scalable, or to just duplicate that data source, right? And so you'll have some kind of large amounts of you know ETL type jobs, you know, doing extracts out of some database, putting into some other database and, and really just kind of reinventing the same solution to the same problem over and over and over in the context of an individual application team. Right. And so it's it's largely the same the same deal, right? Where in the absence of having a service that is engineered and designed with a customer in mind, the customer creates their own solution. Right. And and so th this gets back to so there's it's kind of the change management and uh, the change management of what a cloud native enterprise architect does. And to be to be less uh, time bound, anytime there's change management involved, there's another role, which is called making sure people actually stay changed. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But 
But it occurs to me that like, so talking about these supporting services, well, there's infrastructure and business logic ones. I don't know if that's a technical term. That's something an enterprise architect might do is help those service teams understand that they need to treat their services like a product, like you were saying, and always have an end user or end users in mind. And so in the same way that the actual product teams, right, um, like, like let's use an online banking app, something most everyone's probably familiar with, unless you're a crazy tinfoil hat person and your wallet is your mattress. Uh, but, you know, let's say you've got two parts, showing your account history and paying bills. Uh, in your online thing. So there's new, you've got the product team, you got two product teams showing your, your transactions and you got another product team that's bill pay and supporting that are, let's just say numerous services under there, right? Like you need sure. a service that lets you look up the ledger. Uh, you need a service that authorizes drawing cash from something. You need a service that sends cash to the payee. You probably would have another service that is this canonicalized data source of all the payees that you would have and stuff like that, blah, blah, blah. So, um, all those backing services, I guess the assumption in the following statement is they don't really treat the product teams like their customers and visit with them and observe how they use it on a weekly basis and change things accordingly. Uh, but you need to shift them over to a more user centered like design thing and say like, hey, you need to you need to go to the, the display your account team and the bill pay team and like ask them what they want and service them in the same way that they're servicing end users. Right. And so, yeah, like, I mean, I think oh, whether it's an application team or an infrastructure team or security team, I think getting getting that mental model of being, you know, of service <laughs> is is a huge challenge, right? And that's whether it's you know user centered design or service oriented architecture to, to <laughs> use the phrase. Um, I think that's a big mental shift for uh, maybe not so much developers, but I think. For everybody else, it's huge. Mm, yeah, and 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 do you do you have uh, you know once again do you have any any positive or negative examples of that from your your illustrious history? Um. Yeah. I mean, there's there's you know the team that I well, <laughs> I've got good and bad examples. Obviously. Yeah, those are the um, best. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the reason that that I, I beat this drum so loudly um, now is that when I uh, so I was a uh, director of cloud engineering, um, which is really to say cloud platform engineering, sort of more of the ops and infrastructure side, mm -hmm. um, for a large uh, Fortune 50 retailer for a number of years, um, <clears throat> and did a lot of you know making assumptions about what my customers needed and wanted, um, and didn't you know solicit enough direct feedback, or even if I did, didn't listen to it. Um, and ended up creating a lot of really great technology that, you know, from a pure engineering perspective was pretty amazing um, for migrating um, the entire uh, internet-facing e-commerce website to AWS um, and did that over the course of a couple of years. But in the process, also alienated a lot of developers as well because I was shoving tools down their throat that um, didn't really work the way that they wanted to work, mm. right? And so... I've had just a lot of experiences of kind of doing things the wrong way. And so now I'm super opinionated about um, this whole idea of, you know, user-centered design and working backwards from the customer and, you know, always making sure that you are are fostering a really tight um, feedback mechanism between whoever you're you're creating the service for um, and the team that that's that's delivering it or supporting it. Um, because if if you're creating services that nobody wants to use, 
um, there's a problem there. Yeah, I, I think I think in the cloud native world we call it the uh, the fallacy of the build it and they will come theory, which correct, which comes up too frequently <laughs> across in, in, in exactly the scenario you're talking about where there's there's a very optimistic otherwise like sweethearted team or person who's like I'm going to build the most awesome infrastructure and platform and they right. build it for a while and then and then their actual end customers are like yeah I, I don't care I don't want that right it's yeah. it's almost as if as if you showed up with the best made beef wellington to a vegan birthday party maybe right. not that bad maybe they're only vegetarians uh but uh, so, so I, I mean, you know, without getting too specific, if, if you don't want to, like what, yeah. what were some examples of friction in that case? Like what, what were the thing to use the analogy, right? Like sure. vegans don't want to eat beef, so you shouldn't have yeah. used beef, right? Like what are some, some of the types of things that came up that people just reacted poorly to? Um, I think largely, I think in, in, you know, you'll, you'll, I think latch onto this very quickly being, being from pivotal, right? Is that developers don't want you know in an ideal world i should say developers don't want to have to worry about too many implementation details that relate to things like infrastructure mm -hmm. right they want to spend as much time as they possibly can um working on their applications and their code um which means that uh and i'll just be super specific so in the context of the platform that, that my team built um part of deploying your app necessitated learning not a ton um but enough uh, chef, enough, uh, yeah, enough chef to like be able to tweak um, a roll cookbook or a wrapper cookbook to be able to deploy, you know, your specific instance of let's say uh, a Java application, right. right? And while I felt like, well, hey, it's just you know, it's like a little bit of, of Ruby to do this, right? Like this, this shouldn't be a big deal. Um, it was really off-putting to those developers. They're like, I don't want to learn Chef. <laughs> like, yeah. I just want to deploy my app. Can't you just make that easy for me? Um, and, you know, eventually we started to get it and started to make those things easier. But, I mean, I think that's just an example, right, of like, hey, I don't I don't want to let too much um, of that undifferentiated heavy lifting and too much of that, that non-value-added work leak through into um, – the work that the developer has to do because they've just got a lot more things that they'd rather be doing. Yeah. So, so may, maybe to generalize, um, if you're, if you're working on a platform, like, like, like you were saying, right. The, let's see, the, the cut line of ease is always a lot higher than you think it'll be. Right? Exactly. Like, like you might be thinking like, Oh, you just, you, you know, you always see this in demos and especially of like Kubernetes. I love this. It's like, I just add this one line to this YAML file here and then, Hey, presto. I'm a $5 billion business that can scale up, right? And and, it, and yeah. it always seems like, one, like, when do you ever just add one line to anything? So there's that. But let's put that aside. Yeah. And two, it's like, well, how do I know which file to open up to add the one line to? And what do I put in the one line? And, like, everything else. And and yeah. And at the end of the day, the application developer is like, I thought this was cloud, and I could just deploy my application, and everything would be fine. Right? <laughs> right? And now yeah. I've got to know about zones and like which part to scale up and scale down and whatever the hell a proxy is and like what circuit, like I got to know all this stuff. And like, suddenly I'm an infrastructure developer, which that's right. You know, and then the DevOps people come back and they're like, yeah, you should learn to write code app monkey. But it seems like there's, there's a better, like, uh, or, you know, you should learn how to configure things. It seems like there's a better mix, uh, uh than, than that in that area than 
whatever. I lost my train of thought. There's, yeah, a, there's well, a cut line that's higher than you would imagine, which you would find out if you were like servicing the end users and getting their input and experimenting with them and applying right. the same kind of small batch process where you have a theory of. So your your theory there would be like, well, I'm pretty sure I can just give them this little chef thing and it'll work out well. And then once you observe developers using or not using that, you can be like, well, that was that w- that was correct or that was incorrect. Now I need to solve the problem another way. Mm hmm. Yeah, but I mean, in my case, it was more large batch, and it's like, oh, well, shoot, now we're going to spend a number of months refactoring <laughs> this complexity out right. instead of catching it on the front side. Yeah, no, that that, that makes sense. So, yeah. so you know, and, and then another thing, like, it seems like, and tell me if, if, if this is right with what you're saying is, I think the phrase I've encountered recently is, like, you're inverting the pyramid, right? The... Uh, which which you could also think about you're shifting people who are at the points in the pyramid. But if we think the top of the pyramid uh, is the most important, which if you think historically, I think they were all stored in the bottom. So the bottom was always the most important, but whatever. So uh, the mummies being the, the them, but the top oh, the, of the, that pyramid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the original pyramid. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Way, way back when in, in the uh, <laughs> whatever that Steve Martin song is. Um, but um you know, so at the top of the pyramid is the most important. And what you're doing is instead you have the application developers as the most important and everything is servicing them uh, right. versus the other way around. Anyhow, um, so so then so then also delving into this, I mean, here's another question that I had is. It's kind of a two part question. So one. So if, if we're doing let, let's oh, let's do the, the first part. So let's let's assume and maybe we'll get to this next that once you're in the product team. Um, you can't really dictate what's going on in the product team. Like they, they dictate their own, their own thing. And I think, I think there's, there's a turns out, uh, that we can get to after that. Like it turns out you have to specify their process and how they do their, their stuff. But Mm -hmm. so let's say coordinating between all the different product teams and we'll just say microservices, right? And also the platform that you're using. It seems like there is some enterprise architecture, right? Uh, to distinguish from the role where you're basically saying, when it comes to how all these different teams coordinate and interact with each other, we're going to dictate what that looks like. Like you have to follow a microservices architecture. You're going to need to have endpoints that look like this. You will Mm -hmm. run it on this type of infrastructure. I mean, do you think in your experience, has that panned out to be the case or is it more chaotic? No, I think, I think that's a good way of restating what I've been trying to state, right? It's that, yeah, to your point, the, the application logic itself um, probably tech, the technologies that they're using inside of their microservice to create the te- the, the the application. Um, yeah, I think that can be left to the devices and the strengths of of the team. Um, and I think that's I think that's really the difference between you know what we see in startups versus enterprises is that enterprises have like this huge scaling factor where instead of having you know two or three microservices, maybe we've got thousands. And with, the, and with each of those thousands of microservices, I may have a team associated with it. Right. Um, and without having really well-defined um, conventions and standards and protocols for how those services talk to each other, as well as how do you actually you know, deploy and lifecycle and maintain those services non-disruptively, um, it tends to descend into chaos rather quickly. Yeah. And and so and so, what do what do those definitions look like, or those practices and conventions and standards? Um. Yeah. So I mean, I think you have to take it at each layer of the stack, right? Like I think, you know, I 
this is probably clear to you by now, but I'm coming from a pretty long infrastructure history. So I tend to start building up from, from the bottom when I'm talking about these things. Um, but I think really having strong standards around um, config management and infrastructure as code, I think is, is, is really important just so that you get a lot of the um, uh, variety and heterogeneity out of the environment at that level. Um, I think having standardized ideas around things like monitoring and logging and deployments and um, even your continuous integration and continuous delivery technology. Um, I think there's just not a ton of value in a lot of those things that um, I would say are almost like commodity functions. Everybody, everybody needs them, but like, um, they're not super differentiating in and of themselves. Yeah. Like you don't want to have a hundred different ways to do those things, right? You want to standardize on a few and then really get good at them so that you can get the economies of scale out of um, those lower level functions so that you can then spend more of your time up above the stack. Yeah. Yeah. There, um, I mean, I mean, there, in, the, there's, in the higher levels of the stack. Yeah. There's a super, super weird analogy here, but I remember, uh, especially for people in enterprises, they probably encounter this is you'll be in concur booking some travel and one it's frustrating because they don't you don't you don't have all the flexibility as if you went out to kayak or directly to southwest or american mm -hmm. and oftentimes maybe not often sometimes you'll encounter that it would be cheaper to book outside of concur but you have to book in there and i remember complaining about that and and a, an old hand of of booking things in concur was like ah but because of the huge scale that companies have at the end of the year They'll go to Concur or, or Amex Travel, and depending on all sorts of like the aggregate of all this travel, they'll get some cash back and some discounts on things. So because you aggregate all this stuff together at scale, it's actually sometimes often cheaper to have used mm -hmm. this than to have gone to all these individual things, which, again, it's kind of a weird analogy, but it's just sort of like it's the old local versus globally optimizing is that oftentimes there's global optimizations at scale that make your local optimizations seem ridiculous. <laughs> right. So, so like, like what, I, I, I mean, be, be specific about it though. Like what, what would be the mandates you would make uh, along all those lines? Like what would be the, what would be like the top three things you would mandate if you were given three things? Mm. What, what, oh boy. And this would be the, the <laughs> governance. Like what would, yeah. what would you force down? Um, wow. I'm trying to pick my three carefully. Um, I mean, I don't know. You can have five, yeah. whatever, whatever, yeah. however they may be. Yeah, I mean, the things I would really want to standardize on, I guess, are um, like whatever you want to call your infrastructure code, right? Whether that's Chef or CloudFormation or Ansible or anything else, whatever you're using to actually provision all of that undifferentiated stuff underneath your application, like you really want to do that as um, efficiently and as securely as, as possible. Um, and there's just no value in having, you know, 10 different groups boil the ocean, 10 different ways on that. So that's what I would do first is really standardize that stuff. Um, I think next, I think it's really important to standardize all of your telemetry, um, at least having a really strong set of base telemetry, you know, whether that's, you know, logs or time series metrics or, um, you know, things that are instrumented within your application, just having a really well, well-defined place to store that information and then a really well-defined um set of methods to, you know, get that value back out of that data mm. in the form of, you know, alerts or dashboards or reports or those sorts of things. Um, so I think those two things are really important. Um, I think it's super important whether you're, you know, on, you know, AWS or Cloud Foundry or VMware or whatever, is just having all of your security standards, whatever those may be, 
um, you know, automated and codified as much as possible um, to give these application teams the best fighting chance they have at being compliant and secure yeah. without having to figure out all of that stuff themselves. Um, so I think those three things. Um, and then I think probably the rest of what I would say um, is probably more in the realm of how the applications actually talk to each other. Um, so like, like we said earlier, like having a really clear definition of um, what kind of APIs we're creating, how are they documented, how are they accessed, um, and really being pretty specific about that. And then making sure that as part of the overall kind of lifecycle management process for all these things, we have really good ways to um, basically automate the testing of all of these services ongoing, whether those are infrastructure services or application services, to make sure that the, the spirit or the intent of what those things are providing is actually what is provided in the end product. Um, and there's lots of different ways to do this. Obviously, whether you're your infrastructure or if you are um, an application, um, and making sure that just making sure that those contracts remain intact throughout the various iterations and, and updates of your services, so that you don't have unexpected behaviors impacting you know a hundred different microservices downstream from the one you just changed. Mm, right, right, right. Yeah, and, and, and so it seems like. And this is another like uh, foggy topic is it's, it's, it seems like a lot of what a cloud native architect does is figure out how to automate governance and validation um, and change finding things that were previously time consuming manual and, and mm -hmm. also, uh, you know, time consuming, confusing manual processes like security, right? Like, I, I bet the way most people do security is very time consuming and for the product teams confusing, right? Um, and confusing in a bad way, confusing that's not their fault. <laughs> um, but it seems like a lot of what we want cloud native architects to do is figure out how to automate a lot of that stuff in the same way that mm -hmm. you want to automate a lot of infrastructure. Um, I don't know. And, and, and that's, that's why I, I every now and then I, I've been trying to connect a lot of what cloud native enterprise architect stuff is back to kind of like Google SRE think, because it seems like one of the chief mandates of a Google SRE is automate that shit, right? Like you need to, sure. you need to automate that as much as possible. And if you find something that's being done manually, see rule one, <laughs> it's just like automate pretty much everything, which, which seems like a different thing for an enterprise architect to emphasize. Mm. Well, and I would even nuance that a little bit in saying that I think there that maybe another part of it is figuring out where not to do those things, right? Because there's going to be some huge part of the portfolio where doing all of this cloud native fancy microservices and automation stuff. Like it's just not going to you're not going to get the bang for the buck out of it. Yeah. Right. So I think that's probably another role is figuring out, hey, what are my um, what are my systems of differentiation, systems of engagement, places where this type of operating model and these sorts of technology practices make sense? Um, and then really um, you know, leveraging the shit out of them for, for those products, but also making sure that you're not spending you know, undue cycles um, and dollars and whatever trying to automate something that you only touch once or twice a year. Yeah, yeah. So, so you get you gave an example of standardizing at the infrastructure layer, right? I mean, sure. I, I I assume eventually it sort of panned out, <laughs> or or something good was happening. But do you, do you have like like an example or anecdotes about like um well let's let sort of like standardizing like the microservices process and method or some something something higher up the stack than infrastructure? Right. 
Um, geez. I will have some pretty good examples here over the next few months because I'm engaged in a big project to do this sort of work. Um, boy, I'm drawing a blank on place on some of well, that may, stuff. Maybe, maybe there are no it's, examples. I'm always just fishing yeah. for actual uh, examples of, of stuff that sounds really good. <laughs> But yeah, no, that makes sense. So, so then, so then before we wrap up, like here, here's, here's, here's kind of like the final discussion topic, uh, that I don't know that, that I have, which is, so if we look at the IT organization as a whole, right? So we've talked a lot about like product teams and, um, and the enterprise architect. And then there's vaguely this notion of like the security people and, and things like that. But mm-hmm. there's also like, you know, all of management, like the, the SVP of apps. And the CIO or the CTO and like, mm-hmm. there's probably a PMO office, right? And so like, a lot of what we're talking about, it's it's sort of ambiguous if like the EA should do all of this stuff versus like, what are all those other people doing, <laughs> right? Like, like like should how how do you how how have you seen the other parts of management mm-hmm. either get gotten rid of? or sort of involved in a lot of this change management stuff that we're talking about. What, mm. what, what differentiates an EA doing a lot of this stuff we're talking about versus like the rest of management? Sure. Um, well, I guess the, the way, that, way I'd answer that is that typically a lot of those um, development organizations or, or that's what I'm looking for here. Um, I think typically within a large, or large organization, you don't have just a single development group, right? You've got multiple development groups, maybe across multiple lines of businesses, all with their own, own priorities, all with their own agendas. Um, and I think, I think how the two di- differentiate and how they interact together is that um, the enterprise architect to steward whatever this change is or whatever these standards are across the organization um, in trying to bring um, some kind of uniformity or standardization or governance or whatever, so that the entire organization can reap the benefits of, uh, you know, call it the deduplication or scale economies or whatever. Um, so I think that's that's probably the big difference is that they're they're trying to steward the whole organization, whereas a single VP or a single SVP might just be trying to to steward a single portfolio. Mm. Um, I think in order to be successful at the enterprise level, you need those two those two functions working and partnering actively together, right? Like the EA can, can, you know, uh, wave hands and, and, you know, present PowerPoints and, and have all the, the, the most elegant and beautiful strategy in the world. But ultimately it's their job to get the rest of the organization on board, which means partnering really, really tightly with those senior leaders in other parts of the organization, uh, to help drive that vision forward. Yeah. Right. So I think you can't have one without the other, but they are different. Yeah, I, I, I guess to have a go at the question another way, because not not to invalidate what you're saying at all, but like let's the, let's think of the typical role. So you have a CIO who's in charge of like all of IT, including like desktops. Right? Sure. So and then they have let in, in my so the CIO is not the right person to do all of this change management, right? Obviously, they're interested in it happening and helping out where they can, but they also got to make sure that they're they're you know transitioning from using blackberries to iPhones or whatever. Like they got a whole bunch of other stuff going. Right. Um, Then you might have a, let's call the VP of applications. And this 
would be the person who is in charge of all the custom written software, right? And uh, like on their, I guess on their team or some EAs or something, like I guess that's more of where the question is, is like, what's the what's the Venn diagram of what the VP of apps does versus like an EA function does? Because it seems like mm. they're kind of similar. I mean, I guess to me, I mean, I think they're both they're both doing strategy, but I think the SVP is doing more execution, right? Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> like if I had to, if I had to just put it pretty simply, I think a lot of what the EA is doing is a lot of you know strategy and research and and architecture and all those sorts of things, which to me is generically you know strategy, um, and then trying to influence the other parts of the organization to do execution. Yeah, now that makes sense. So, so the EA function is more like more like uh, saying what should be done, specifying strategy, whereas the, the VP is sort of like goes out and make sure it happens. <laughs> and, and you know, numerous operational things and finance right. and, and all, all of that sort of stuff. That makes sense. Yeah. And, and I guess the other thing I put is that I don't think the EA role, and we touched on this last time, like I don't think it's purely strategy. Um, yeah. I think it's also working with, a lot of those groups to figure out how to enable the changes that that they're strategizing about, for lack of a better word. Yeah. Um, and like I said, that can be in the in um, the form of influencing those leaders. It can also be, um, and we haven't really talked about this at all, um, is like trying to figure out how do you actually scale this this change management piece so that the whole organization um, gets on board gets the skills they need, gets the training they need, gets the support they need, et cetera, et cetera, to actually successfully make it through the change, right? Like, so like if we've talked about kind of like the, the business perspective on, on the first show, and this is trying to get more into the tech, there's also this whole, I think, just like people change thing um, that has to come into play as well. And I think that's also uh, a quintessential part of that role. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, let me, let me, let me try to sum up uh, a lot here. Cause I, cause I think, I think it's always good to try to like state the truth of a matter in order to figure out what it is. And, and then, and then we can wrap up, which is uh, if, if you still have time, which is, so what an, what a cloud native enterprise architect does is uh, the assumption first is that with the custom written software business has, they would like to have a, uh, a user centric, um, approach the software. They want to apply a small batch thing where like each of the product teams has this balanced team notion of all the roles they need. And they just focus on like doing bill pay really well. And every week mm-hmm. they're releasing something to production and studying if the theory they had like improves bill pay uh, for people, right? Like one theory might be uh, people pay multiple bills a month. So we should have a screen that lists editable fields of all the bills that they could pay. And maybe that's good. Maybe that's bad. I don't know. Right. I'm just making something up. So you have these product teams um, and the way you're going to enable those product teams is basically to automate a whole lot of stuff so they don't have to write chef scripts. And in order to do that, you're going to have some sort of highly standardized, centralized might just be metaphoric, but you're going to mm-hmm. have a, a standardized platform or infrastructure in place. Um, and then further, the only sort of architectural thing, as overloaded as this term is, is you're going to try to follow a microservices way of doing things, which goes back to what we were saying. One of the chief characteristics of this, never mind the, the sizing, is the team writing the service is, also, is treating the product teams like their users and on a small batch cycle trying to increase the usability mm-hmm. of the service that they have. Um, now, I think another thing that we didn't talk about at all is 
in the same way that you standardize on a platform, and you might consider this part of the platform, is you want to standardize on a build pipeline. You want to have one way to build and deploy and operate um, basically the software that you have. Because that, that gets to the third goal, which is like every time we have a duplicative way of doing something, that makes us less efficient and makes our software worse. So we don't want to have a bunch of different build pipelines. We don't want to have a bunch of different telemetry. We don't want to have a bunch of different infrastructure. We don't want to have a bunch of different um, ways of doing APIs and integrating amongst components. So that's kind of like the view of where we want to get to. I mean, does mm-hmm. that does it all sound I, good? I think it sounds. I think it sounds pretty good. I think I'd say one. I think we're, what what we're really saying there is um, that this product model, like this customer focused product model, isn't just for applications. Right. It's also for infrastructure services, operation services, security services, et cetera. Um, and so I, I guess that's just what I would say is that the, the product model should be ubiquitous throughout IT. It's not just for the business and development. Um, and I yeah. think in addition to that, I would say that I wouldn't um, pursue standardization to the detriment of usability and customer satisfaction, right? Sure. Like if, if the service you're offering um, isn't working, um, then you might have to add another service or change the service. Or maybe you have to have three versions of one service to satisfy the three different kinds of cu- to three kinds of customers that you have. Um, I think the thing is that um, while we want to minimize variation, um, the thing we always want to be focused on is making sure that, that we're satisfying the customer, whether that's yeah. a human in development, a human who's our actual customer, or even like another API or service who's consuming our service. Right, right. I, I mean, you, you might you might say um, o- only only allow as much variation as is absolutely needed. <laughs> right. And as an example, right? I think I think it, it, it might be good to say like we're going to do the whole like uh, rest based way of doing everything and whatever the kids call that nowadays. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we're going to do JSON over HTTP, and that's the way that integrations occur. And and maybe you're in some sort of industrial thing, and it's like, that's really inefficient if I'm doing, like, car stuff or factory things. So could we use, like, this this highly optimized message bus thing instead or event-based things? And you could say, like, sure, we'll do that, <laughs> right? Like, we'll have this mm-hmm. variation of, of of the various services interacting with each other that again, because we're taking a user-centric view, like that's not working for the user. So we need to have a different uh, standard in, in that respect, right. which, which makes total sense. So, so then we have this sort of in-state um, painted out, which I don't think is too idealistic. I mean, it, it is kind of idealistic, but it's not like over-the-top crazy, uh, at least. So part of a huge part of what an EA has to do for the foreseeable future is like, I need to understand, and this goes a lot of back to what we were talking about earlier, I need to understand and map business stuff, understand how IT works, and be one of the people along with the VP of apps and other management, sort of like charting the course for how we do change there, how we get there, and also continually updating what our notions are and kind of setting that strategy of how we're getting from here to there, right? Which that that all seems needed. So you're 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 part of the change, you're you're setting the course and the plans for how you're going to change from where you are to that idealized state. And then, and then another thing that we haven't really talked about that, but that is part of that is like, you probably need someone to worry about dealing with legacy. <laughs> right. Um, so that could be a whole other discussion we have is like, what is, what is the enterprise architect of legacy dealing with do? <laughs> right. Right. Um, 
And then, and then I think the third thing that that a cloud native EA, EA would need to do, which is always the the most uh, useless thing to state, is like every organization is going to have some unique problems, and you need to be part of the team that's figuring out what to do about that, <laughs> right? Like, um, I don't know for one that's common, but is kind of an example of this. I remember talking with with several organizations who were like, "Yes, but we have a bunch of offshore development, so." what do we do? <laughs> right? Like we, we use a lot of offshore developers and how do we, you know, they're like 18 hours. They're on the opposite side of the world. And like, how do we coordinate with them and what do we do? And just, I mean, I'm just kind of like cooking up an example here. It seems like something an EA might advise in is like, well, why don't you make sure that those d various teams are very decoupled and they're like, they do one microservice or they do different right. microservices. So you don't really have to coordinate with them very frequently. Right. And, but I'm sure there's a whole bunch of other, you know, issues that come up oh, yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah. I'm dealing with that at a, a customer right now where there are, they're all gung ho, gung ho to do that, right. To basically create autonomous um, product teams offshore. The problem there is that, well, now the, the product owner or the business only exists onshore. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, they yeah. can, uh, all sorts of weird things can can kind of derail that, but um, they're moving in the right direction. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know if it's real or not. It'd be good to run this by people who are actually doing it. But it seems mm -hmm. it seems like where we arrived as far as the southbound thing is it's basically an EA is one of the major functions in in the change management of moving around to uh, a more user centric way of doing your custom written software. And that has all sorts of implications that we were talking about, about what things to standardize and things not to standardize and using a, a platform in the middle. That's a very pivotal centric way of putting it. Um, but, and, and then figuring out what your hands off about with the team and then, uh, and then finding all the unique little hurdles to uh, getting to a more cloud native organization. And then it's probably realistically at the point where like, that's so much work that like, we'll figure out what an EA does after that. <laughs> right. Like, like, I, I don't think, I don't think, uh, I don't think we ever achieved maximal, you know, WS star driven SOA that we had to worry about what an EA does after, uh, after all that is put into place. So, you know, it's just constantly change management and making sure things are being uh, done well. Agreed. You got anything else you want to add before we wrap up? Mm, don't think so. I think right. I'm good. That's good. All right. Well, as always, this has been a uh, another another planned rando topical episode of the Cote Variety Podcast Show. If you want to find this, the show notes for this episode and look at the other ones that range from uh, I just released one in the, the Drunken Retired series where we talked about uh, Canadian whiskey and The Economist. Totally different topic. Hence variety. But you can go to Cote.show. That's the kind of world we live in. You got these TLDs like that show, but you can go there and uh, find the uh, the RSS thing to subscribe to, find past episodes, and you can even leave comments. And we also have a Slack channel you can go to. I think it's uh, I forget what the the address is, but you can find a link to it there and, and come uh, chat around in there, along with the other podcasts I do, like the uh, the Software Defined Talk podcast. So uh, thanks for being on for this episode. We'll have to figure out. Uh, some schedule to have you come back and talk about uh, more of this stuff and, and other topics. Awesome. Always, always good to hang out with you. What, uh, what kind of Twitter handle or whatever do you have that you would send people? Oh, to? sure. Yeah. So I'm uh, at Matt Walburn on Twitter. So right. uh, yeah, feel and, free to drop me a line. And only one L. 
but it is sort of like you're burning the walls, <laughs> burning down the walls yes. in the IT organization. There, there you go. All right. Well, great. Well, uh, that's it. Bye-bye.